I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. We all have the power to choose. Free will is a tenet of most religions and philosophies. But there are some things in life that, no matter how you look at it, you can't choose. You can't choose your parents, you can't choose your face, at least not the one you're born with, and you can't really choose your sex at birth. It is what it is. If Iska Smith would have been given the choice of how to be born, it might not have necessarily been as Yaakov, but that's what fate, or God, or whatever you want to believe in, chose. But when the time came, Yiska did make an incredible choice, which led her to become the observant woman that she is today. As many of you know, June is Pride Month. Last Friday, Tel Aviv hosted its Pride Parade, and we're continuing to discuss the fascinating questions about gender, sexuality, and Jewish identity. With us today is Iska Smith, author of 40 Years in the Wilderness, My Journey to Authentic Living. She lives in Jerusalem and teaches at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. We are very honored and thrilled to have her on the show with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? Thank God. Wonderful. Baruch Hashem. So you were born secular? Uh, c- correct. Okay. Jewish family, Long Island. At what, middle at what class. point in your life did you uh, in, kind of in- encounter religious Judaism? Uh, in my early 20s after my first visit here. And what what pulled you into it? What, uh, what uh, uh, attracted you? The spiritual component. I see. Yeah. And, and it was very much um, in harmony with my newfound Zionism. Uh, so for me, uh, making Aliyah and becoming observant came together. So your parents weren't necessarily Zionist? Definitely not. So what aspect of your childhood was Jewish, if any at all? Uh, I went to Hebrew school for the five years that we all had, were forced to go, all the boys and girls from Bar and Bat Mitzvah. We ha- celebrated at home some of the traditions. Uh, Pesach, we had a Seder with my grandparents. We'd go to the Bet HaKnesset for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, we had a Purim party with had, the youth group. Had you I, been to Israel at all? My first time, well, no, not. My first visit here was in 1971 when I was turning 20. I'm soon to be 68. So oh, was, wow, so 48 years. 48 years ago. Wow. And I was here within the first week. I understood why I never felt the United States was my home. How come? Because I felt home here. I don't know why. It's just some some kind of instinctual re- instinctual. Yeah, it was an intuitive sense that uh, that I'm home. And wh- interestingly enough, in the beginning, I was happy that I didn't have to be religious. Like I could just be here as a Jew, and I started feeling really proud, really excited. To be Jewish, I wanted to explore the history of the Bible, the prophets, the modern political state since Hakamat HaMedina. I wanted to know everything, Hebrew, Ivrit, Hakol. And that led to me eventually going for a master's program in Jewish education. But why Chabad from all the paths? The reason why Chabad is because as I was going for my master's degree in Jewish education at the Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan, which is the the mothership, so to speak, of the conservative movement in the United States, 
the, the school there ordains conservative rabbis, Chazanim, and also uh, they award masters and PhDs in Jewish philosophy, Jewish history, Jewish education. So while I was there, because I knew I was really called upon to teach, that was my calling. I really felt that from a long time ago. And my Jew, as my Jewish identity was blossoming, I wanted to put the two together and teach as I was learning to teach. But I felt that the curriculum was rather dry. Uh, it didn't have enough spirit. So believe it or not, one, um, a colleague of mine, a fellow student at JTS, I don't remember who it was, this was a long time ago in the seven, 1970s, said, you know, there's this person that comes once a week here and he gives a class uh, JTS knows about it, but it's not matriculated. It's just for those who want to learn more spirituality. They want to know more about God. I said, well, let me go to that. What do I have to lose? Uh, and I loved it. And it was uh, the book Tanya, which is the basic book of Chabad Chassidut. And I fell in love with the teacher. I mean, he taught with so much passion and clarity. And he was a real nice person, wasn't arrogant with all what he knew, which was not the case with my professors. Uh, and little by little, I became more and more attracted, to, not towards the movement, not towards the dress or the strict way of observing the mitzvot, but the the emphasis of being in relationship with God. It, re- it very much attracted me. And then because also alongside, I was internally uh, engaged in this terrible, terrible struggle with my gender identity dysphoria. So I thought, well, if I go deeper into my own Judaism, uh, I'll make a deal with God. Like, I'll go and become more Hasidic even. or more. And I had just gotten married to a woman, and I felt really pressured to start having a family. And there was a lot of confusion with that. So I thought if I were to be living a life more tuned in to walking with God, walking with the divine, somehow it would all even out. It was kind of like a like like a pay pay off, kind of like a well, cancel we, each other out. In a yeah, way. I say as Haskem Chadzadadi, you know, I made this deal on behalf of both of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, God, I'll do whatever I'm supposed to do. Either let me wake up tomorrow morning and let me just feel for the first time in my life that I'm a guy because my body is a guy, I'm one of a male. Or let me wake up tomorrow morning and let me really have the body of a woman, not knowing about gender transition. I didn't mm-hmm. even know about that. So I thought either one, if God is God, God could do either one. And I really didn't care. I really didn't care. I just wanted my machshavot. Wait, am I allowed to speak in Hebrew at all? Or uh, uh, we keep so, to English, so. but we'll, okay. we can help. Again. Your thoughts. My thoughts, my hagashot, my feelings, and my body, I wanted, wanted them to be at the same place at the same time, in yeah. harmony with each other. So That's what I was when, seeking. So when did you start feeling that? When did the you struggle? Yeah, when did you start experiencing this internal struggle that you... Oh, gosh. As far back as when I was five years old. And how did it, how did it express itself? Uh, you know, this is all in my book, and I've been interviewed a lot in Israel about this. So I'd rather, if we could, move to something more that talks about me today. I feel I could give more content, Okay. Uh, if that's okay with you. Yeah. I, I've repeated this a lot on TV in Israel, on the radio, in articles, in my book, in my TED Talk that I gave in Yerushalayim. Mm-hmm. My emphasis today is on teaching authentic living. 
Which, which is which, which is different for each person, but my story informs my own narrative, which is why I can teach to that based in a lot of Jewish texts, like Rav Cook and like the Ish Kodesh Rebbe. And there's a lot of different, uh, especially spiritual texts, that address really being honest with oneself. And I was not honest with myself, even in the middle of my Hasidic observance and, and learning the Torah and outwardly showing to the world that I looked like a Hasidic man, when deep inside I knew that was not true. And we say, for example, on Shabbat, in the evening, the morning, and the afternoon, tefillot, in the prayers, And here I am, living in Israel, davening, praying at the kotel, at the wall, with children, my children, asking God to purify my heart so I could be with God in truth, and I'm lying as I'm saying it. But there's a there's a huge price to that, a price to pay for telling the truth, especially at the point in, in, in your life that you were at. You had a family, you had you know children. Well, what happened was eventually it all came... Uh, it's like I built this huge skyscraper of uh, successful teaching. I was the director of the Chabad House in the old city of Jerusalem. And I had a lot of programming. I had a tzevet. I had a whole team. I would fundraise. I would give lectures all over in the United States and raising my family there. And the more successful I became outwardly, the worse I was feeling inwardly. Uh, because I couldn't contain, I couldn't hold the contradiction anymore, or the deception. I didn't want to deceive anyone. It was, my, it was a survival uh, tactic. So eventually, during the Gulf War crisis in 1991, we divorced uh, my children's mom. And I left, like we say in Hebrew, I really returned to what the original question was, and that is, is there really a place for me in Israel? Is there a place for me with God, with Torah? Is there really a place for me? I tried so hard to do it that way, and in the end, it just dried me up emotionally inside. And <clears throat> I'm reminded of a teaching from Rav Cook, mm-hmm. where he asks, what's the difference between... Uh, someone who is a slave and someone who's free was the difference between Avdut and Chirut in his introduction to the, his commentary on the Haggadah for Pesach. So he said that a person who is free, even if they're physically restrained, let's say like in prison, but they are faithful. He uses the word ne'aman. They, be, they remain faithful to their inner self, their, their atzmiyut panimiyut their inner self, which is their soul, and they remain faithful to that. And that directs how they make decisions and how they go about navigating different parts of their lives is maintaining manut to their own B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God in which each one of us has been created. Mm-hmm. He didn't really refer to how religious outwardly, he talked more of an inward um, disposition of a, a certain way of being. And he said a slave is someone who, in modern times, even if they have freedom of movement, so they're not physically restrained, uh, they make all their decisions by p- through peer pressure, expectations by society, what the world is telling them they should want. So at the end, what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong? And they don't have a sense of their own integrity to really hold on to, to guide them through 
like a ship going through the waters. You know, sometimes the waters are peaceful, sometimes there are storms at sea. And they always, he said, these people will always look outwardly for direction rather and, than inwardly. And what was that inward voice, that truth inside you saying? Well, at that point, I knew that I had to resolve. Now, in 1991, not having a computer, because I didn't know anyone that had a personal computer then, coming out of the world of Chabad, so we didn't have a TV. It was more of a Haredi-ish type of, even the Chabad's more modern, it's still within community, tends to be more, you know, not, not that many periodicals. And this was in 1991, not 2019. Yeah. Between Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I had no idea. I didn't even know the word transgender. I didn't know about gender transition. I had no idea. I just knew I had to resolve this. This could not continue. And I tried to continue it not being observant. I traded one lie in for another lie. I traded being a straight Orthodox Jewish man. I traded that lie in, and I tried to be a gay, uh, non-religious man. Mm-hmm. I say, well, and there's nothing in common between a man who's gay and a man who is a, a woman who's born in a male body. There, mm-hmm. There's very little connection between the two. But again, I was not that informed. So I tried to... How, how are they different? Like, I mean, I, I understand that they're different. But how are they you, different? Yeah. Well, because are like the short version, as we say, al regalachat. So sexual orientation is who the person is attracted to outside of themselves. Could be male, could be female, could be bisexual. So it, it has to do with who the person in a more romantic, sexual, intimate way, who that, what is the gender of that person. Gender identity dysphoria has to do with when I look in the mirror, what do I see? It has nothing to do with who I'm attracted towards. Mm-hmm. So do I see a man? Do I see a woman? My whole life, every time I look... Or in, neither, or both. Well, that's also okay. We just I'm a hug. little, I'm a little bit older, so I, okay. I, I don't really hold that space. That's really, um, I, I don't even go there. Okay, because we just had a guest yeah. who was uh, yeah. gender uh, non-binary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm very bi. I'm totally binary. Okay, okay. And from when I was five, I'm also almost sixty-eight. I'm not eighteen, so I'm in a different two generations ago before right. that. Ter- I've done enough for one right. life in terms of gender. Yeah, I'm very. Happy. You're very advanced for your for yeah. your uh, generation. I, I am no, very. No yeah. Well, you know, my generation. We are the baby boomers. We were born to change. Right. Yeah. You know, we were right. born to change the world and to bring the world we believe to a uh, a more wholesome, a nicer place. But but you mentioned you you speak about but it. But does it? Did I clarify the difference? Yeah. In yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do. I, you know. Twice or even three times, you mentioned it. You called it uh, gender uh, dysphoria, gender which, identity dysphoria, gender identity dysphoria, which I've always heard from the side that sort of sees it as a syndrome or some kind of. You know, usually when I when I hear the discussions about it or debates about it or whatever, then I hear people the the people that are on the side of kind of in favor of transitioning. They don't usually refer to it in that way because that. Has like a stigma of a disease. You know, I can only talk from my experience. I'm not a mental health practitioner, and I know that the American Psychiatric Association actually changed the name. It used to be called, when I was transitioning, it was called gender identity disorder. Mm -hmm. Then it was changed in terms of the diagnosis to gender identity dysphoria. I don't know what people are calling it now. 
I can only tell you my experiences. When a, a child at five or seven or nine looks into the mirror and expects to see a girl looking back and sees a boy, no one will convince me that that's normal. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm not in any way putting uh, just the way with my spiritual Jewish values. I don't uh, force it onto other people. But I will not let anyone tell me that my personal narrative was okay. There was nothing okay about it. Yeah. It caused a lot of hurt to people that I loved a lot. And I was not right with myself. And I was not right with God. And that was even much more important in becoming more observant. I really wanted to be right with my soul. And I wasn't. So today, in 2019, I'm not really interested. Well, I'm interested in terms of showing compassion. And as an older person who provides spiritual mentorship, I do care what people do say. But about my personal narrative, no one but me can talk about it. And it was a disorder, dysphoria, confusion, call it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. There was something radically, radically wrong. Mm. And I didn't have language. In 1956, 1957, 1960, I didn't have language for it. I couldn't even explain it. Right, and without language, you cannot put (laughs) sense to the chaos of the mind. Nachon, nachon, exactly. I remember 1992... This was a year after my divorce. That's when I first learned. I was back in New York, and I was divorced. I was non-observant, although missed Israel and missed because I knew Israel's my home. It's like Dorothy said, there's no place like home, but there was no place I felt for me to be at home. It was very, I really felt I had that victim posturing, which mm, I really didn't want. Uh, But... I remember reading this article about someone 10 years older than me who transitioned, and I really felt someone gave me the key out of my own prison. That's the Eureka moment. The Eureka. 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 That was my Eureka moment. That was my epiphany. That was my my tikva, my hope. I wasn't ready to transition right when I closed the magazine, (laughs) but at least I was able to research, and I saw something ahead of me, Mm -hmm. and... What was beautiful about my transition was it brought me back to Torah. How? Because I was, because as I mentioned Just in... To many people, it would be contradiction. Contradictory. A, a, contradic- a paradox. A paradox. Yeah, a paradox. Yeah. For me, it was hefech, literally the opposite, because I realized the reason I wasn't transitioning once I knew about it was I was still trying to control me rather than surrendering something I could not control. So I had to literally invite the divine spirit into, the con- into my own story. And instead of making deals with God, I just asked God to help me be honest, knowing what that meant. And I will tell you, the, the steps along my transition were the easiest that was part of like that was one of the easiest parts of my entire life. When people ask me, it must have been so difficult. No, living for fifty years before I transitioned, that totally wore me out. I had no energy left. But once I held on to God, it was as if metaphorically, God reached out his, her, its hand and said, Yiska, hold on. I'll take you where you need to go. Don't ever let go. And I've never let go in the past twenty eight years. Why Yiska, by the way? Okay. Um, that's an, okay, so it's another chapter in my book. <laughs> Yiska, 
I knew when it was time to change my name legally, just as when I helped put children into the world. I, I really believed in the Midrash that we don't name our children. God reveals to us the name because the name is the essence. So we don't really know the essence of our child. So God reveals at the naming, at the, either the Brit or the baby naming for the Simchat what the name is. And I really believed in that very much. So I believed I can't name myself. I don't even know my essence. This is like a big, this is a big undertaking to change a name, the person's name. So I said, Hashem, and I, t- I talked a lot with God in my transition, and I really felt close to God, the God inside of me. It wasn't like this the- theology of this big, tall, huge man up there with a beard and a staff sitting on a throne. It was the peace of me where there's no fear, where there's no judgment. It's all compassion, and it's the part of me that's pure. And that part of me said, you'll know your name when you're supposed to know your name. And maybe about two or three months later, and I learned in my transition, instead of all the time running, I learned patience. I learned patience. And I just held each moment as I started to also meditate and go into more of a spiritual dimension in Judaism, the real spiritual dimension. Uh, And one day I was driving, I was in a car with some friends. I wasn't driving, I was a passenger. And I remember this. All of a sudden, I said, I know my name, I know my name. And it's like it manifested, it, it literally, I channeled it, to use a spiritual term in English. I channeled, it, was, it came into me, and I knew, in English it's Jessica, in Ivrit, in uh, my Israeli passport, it's, it's Yiska, in my American passport, it's Jessica. Uh, and only later when I found out more about Yiska, who she was. She was Sarai before she married Avram. And she also had her name changes. She went from Yiska to Sarai to Sarah. So I went from Jeff to Yaakov to Jessica Yiska. So I shared very much, but also she was able, the word Lishkot means to look into, to see something deeper in the present than most people don't see. And that was totally my reality. So now that was my name. I want to. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really, I, I connect to the idea that you know that it's that that you speak with God uh, as kind of a part of you. That's the the quiet kind of truth inside you. Um, but I wonder how how you reconcile because it feels to me, and I'm, I guess I'm going back a bit to Noah's question that Judaism. And some of the decisions that you made on the face of things to a lot of people, and I'm not an observant Jew, but from my, I guess, superficial understanding of it, are irreconcilable. Is that so, or, or is that... It's a big misassumption that people make about religious, the religious world, and there's equally a big misassumption made in the religious world about the secular world. Only experience reveals really the truth and the truth is person by person so for example what you're talking about transphobia is the word i believe that you were referring you're alluding to the religious world is not transphobic and the secular world is not not transphobic what i mean is there are individuals across the board in the religious world who are extremely transphobic and there are many people in the secular world, right here in Tel Aviv, that 
are very transphobic. There are people in Tel Aviv that do not keep Shabbat, and there are people in Me'a Sharim that do, that are not transphobic. So the, the, the Shulchan Aruch, the, the, the Halachot, the Dinim, do not one way or another have a black and white, the way Basar is Basar and Chalavi is Chalavi. It's not that at all. It has a lot to do with people's own... I really don't know what it has to do with in terms of people feeling either threatened or not right with something that's different than what they're used to. That fear is not owned by any one culture. It's part of the human experience. But wouldn't you say that uh, among, among uh, let's say, Chabad uh, observance, uh, I don't know, if you were to Paul, you would find that vast majority of them are transphobic or oppose transition, whereas in secular Tel Aviv, you would find, I don't know, that 50% or 40%. I don't, you know, you know I, what I'm saying? Again, the I, numbers here are just different. Because, because of my experience, I live in a religious area. I teach two, I teach a religious texts. Granted, it's the spiritual texts. And I can only speak from my experience. Again, Part of my experience, and maybe because I transitioned, I think this is a big factor. Actually, not maybe. I want to suggest that it is a big factor, was my age. I transitioned at 50. I brought a lot of my own worldly life experience to my transition. I was looking for nobody to approve. Therefore, I was very humbled by my transition. I didn't expect anyone to pat me on the back. I never looked for approval. Till today, I don't seek it. Rather, I seek to help people. I'm in service to the rest of humankind, specifically Jews, uh, but also by extension, all human beings, to live a more authentic life with whatever that means for themselves. And going back to Jewish tradition, we have a, 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 we have a tradition, and I've actually discussed this with some people in the religious world who were really transphobic and really pushed on me. I said, from, aside from the fact you don't know what you're talking about, I want to remind you of the uh, halacha that pikuach nefesh tochet Shabbat, that saving a person's life, whatever we need to do to save a person's life, pushes away all the laws of Shabbat. Meaning, that's an example of the value of life. If you have to drive to the hospital, you go to the hospital. I mean, you don't think twice. Not that you're allowed. You're, you're required because of the value of life. When God said in Deuteronomy, I put before you life and death. I put before you the blessing and the curse. Choose life. So from that we know that except for, there's a very few three mitzvot in particular, aside from those three of the 613, 610 mitzvot, we are obligated to break in order to save a life. I felt when I woke up on my 50th birthday, and I don't have to explain this to any Rav, because pikuach nefesh is subjective. You can't even go to a doctor because no doctor, because a doctor is a human being, can say definitely one way or the other. I knew when I woke up, I could not continue this anymore. I could not continue breathing into someone else's body. I was dying inside. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting, God forbid, that I would commit suicide. But others did. Well, and do all the time in the religious well, community. You know... <laughs> Just for the record. Yeah. Just well, there the are lots of people. And there, are, there are more suicides outside of the religious community than inside the religious community. I mean, suicide is a, is a terrible, terrible mental um, illness. I mean, it's this, 
There's a lot going on for someone to actually commit suicide. No one commits suicide just because they're A, B, or C. That really simplifies a very, a very difficult, complex reality. But you can segment what? the society. And in, uh, I think this is just to the point. In the trans community, there is a high level of suicide. I, I don't know. I, I, you may know more than me. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't study this. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't study this. I do know that... Uh, a lot of trans people that I know trans transition very successfully and living are living wonderful lives. I do know of people who were born transgender and committed suicide. I'm not so quick to say they committed suicide because they were transgender. I don't know. I don't know. I have to. Uh, but wouldn't you say? But, but I just sorry. wanted to finish this. Yeah. So I, f- I, I didn't mean to get into the suicide part of it, but I, I want to make sure to be uh, to be transparent with the audience that when I felt my life was literally on the line, it's not because I felt I was going to commit suicide. God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. I just felt I couldn't do this anymore. That I was dying. I really felt I was dying, and I would have died not because I committed suicide. In my mind, in my heart, I felt I was just shriveling up into nothing. So therefore, I, I could look at any rabbi in the, right into his or rabbah, her eyes, and say, Pikuach nefesh tochet And what they say? They said, well, we don't believe that this is pikuach nefesh. I said, well, you don't have to. I really don't care. <laughs> I really, really don't. I'm not looking for your haskamah. Right. You, I'm telling you why I did what I did. If that's of interest to you and you want to have an adult, responsible, mature, compassionate discussion, I'll take you out for coffee. Wouldn't but I'm not going to defend myself. Iskaw, wouldn't you say <laughs> uh, like, that, that if you are, let's say you were a father of three and you discover in the age of 50 you, you have to transition, wouldn't you say that your chances to do it and successfully maintaining, let's say, relationship with your family is higher if you're in a secular family than if you're in a Chabad family. I don't want. I don't want to make a general. I know where you. I know what you want me to say. <laughs> I know no, exactly because, what you want me to say, but I can't say it because my experience is to the contrary. I can only talk from my experience, and the religious world. I'm not defending the religious world. I'm not defending the secular world. Neither of these worlds own what I call bigotry, discrimination, uh, racism, um, um, what's the word? Um, Tolerance, but prejudice. Prejudice against women. Um, uh, Uh, Misogyny. uh, Misogyny. There is no one group and a doctrine in Judaism that owns that. So you refuse to acknowledge that religion in general, Judaism, Christianity, Muslim, uh, Islam, are more likely to be less tolerant christianity the reason i believe that judaism has the problems it does with sexuality is because of christianity no yeah no, um, nonetheless you you don't you will not recognize no it's that not that i won't no it's not that religion. i won't it's not that i look in the we know in the arab countries in the muslim world what happens when someone comes out gay we or know in mashal yeah well no one's thrown off buildings in maya sharim no one is but they murdered. Throw rocks at you. Well, there's a difference. Or spit on you. Okay, but no one. There is a difference between being spit on and someone who is a chayal from a Haredi family can also get spit on. In the Islam Islamic world, they're thrown off buildings and they're murdered. There's 
Well, there's, I mean, if they could, they would throw, I think. From, well, uh, from, I, I don't, they could. you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of residual trauma in the Haredi world from the Shoah, from the Holocaust. I, I have tried for years to try to understand some of the offensive, hurtful behavior, not towards me, just in general. Just where is that coming from? And I think it's not a simple, it's like the older I get, the less answers I have. When I was 20, I knew everything. <laughs> now that I'm 68, I really don't know much at all. <laughs> but, I, but I know a lot more to know that I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not quick to generalize the way I used to. Um, I'll okay. leave it like that. So let's get to your teachings. Yeah. First of all, how, how do you decide what kind of teaching, how do you come to teaching and what do you teach? And who are your students? So years ago, oh gosh, this must have been when I was in college at the George Washington University. I already felt I want to teach. I just love education. I love learning. I love scholarship. I love academia. And I've learned how to also be emotional with it, which is a real treat because it's not just a cerebral exercise. It's really mind, body, and soul wholeness. And I love diving into text and love sharing it. And I have all different kinds of students. I have a group of students in uh, Yerushalayim. The average age is 70, and I'm learning one text with them. Then my uh, the year program at Pardes, the average age, I'd say, is about 25 to 30 and I'm teaching them. I have a private spiritual mentoring practice where I guide individuals along their spiritual uh, journey. I provide spiritual guidance, helping individuals build up a spiritual toolbox, which is very different than therapy. It's not therapy. It's providing spiritual guidance. And I lecture all over the world in two weeks. What's today? Wednesday? Two weeks from today, Bezrat Hashem, I'll be in the uh, Berkshires where I've been invited to speak at a renewal slash reform synagogue community, where I'll be giving and teaching four classes of spiritual practice because I see Judaism as a spiritual practice. I don't see Judaism as a religion. I see it as a nationhood that, that brought spiritual practice to the part of the world where we evolved from. I'm not saying other places in the world don't have a spiritual practice. I know they do. But we are very much of a spiritual practicing people when we want to be and when we dive into the sources that teach to that. So that's what I teach. I'll be walking into a room where I know maybe two people, and there could be 100 people in that room, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding their souls. I'm teaching to their souls. I'm teaching them how to be more in touch. You mentioned earlier, one of the two of you, about the quiet part in us. That's called the called the mamandaka, the still small voice, and we all have that. And there there are practices that we need to cultivate to tune down all the noise around us so we can hear her. Where, where is that from, the mamandaka? It's from the. It's in the book. It's in Tanakh. It's with Eliyahu Navi. Uh. When Eliyahu Navi was invited by God to come out of the cave because he was he was hiding out from the um, pursuers from Baal, from the idol worshippers who wanted to murder him. <clears throat> so God said, you can come out of the cave now and you will sense my presence. And it says in the Pasuk, in the verse, when he came out, the, the ground rumbled like an earthquake. He didn't, he didn't sense God. There was a fire, all these fires, he didn't sense God. And there was a loud wind. I think it's Ruach, Eish, and Ida. And he didn't feel God. And then everything got still. And he heard nothing. 
outside of him. And he heard the Koldumamadaka. So from that, there's a lot of spiritual teachings that cultivate how to tune down the, the fires, the earthquakes, the winds, the noise, all the drama in life, and to be able to sit and go into one's inner core. Mm-hmm. And that's what I believe my purpose now is, much more than just teaching from a text, but using the text to help people go deeper inside of themselves where they can then touch the cornerstone of authentic living. Do you also, what about people who transitioned and want to find their path to Judaism? Do you work with such people at all? or uh, uh, f- uh, Not that many, although a few have uh, have written to me or have approached me when in Yerushalayim, when I've traveled abroad. This maybe many don't know it's a, even a possibility, right? Yeah, so, well, that's why I put myself out there. Right. I have a website. I have a TED Talk. I have part. I have podcasts. I have a book. <laughs> There's we'll only plug everything in a few minutes. Yeah. By the way. Mm. So uh, an example yeah. to yeah. your point. I just received, I was with my daughter and my newest granddaughter. She was just born, actually, Yom HaShoah. When the siren was going, that my, really? my daughter's <laughs> contractions were the heaviest. And right when the tzfirah was finished, my granddaughter popped into the world. <laughs> I mean, talk about like... You know, circle, circle of life. Circle of life. Yeah. So I was with her about two weeks ago. We were having lunch. She, she and her family, they live in Rehovot. And we were out with my son-in-law eating someplace. The older kids were in school. And I get this email, and this is what happens. It's from someone uh, who's at Hebrew University. His wife is male to female transitioned, and they are getting ready to go back to the States, and they don't know how to do this, and they've heard about me. So I wrote them back, and I said, I'd like to have a session with you just to meet each other, uh, and I hopefully I can provide spiritual guidance. They're, they're religious? Yes. Oh, yeah. So here, this is a married couple. And she's what's called in stealth. She's not like me where... She's um, out. She's not out. She's totally she's, out, she's totally not out. And she's living... The, uh, outwardly, she's living a life similar to how I'm living. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know... And nobody knows she's transitioning. According to what he wrote me. Uh-huh. I, because I haven't talked to them. I, haven't, I want to be very careful right. not to misquote uh, with the email. But you can, I can tell it's very, very serious. Wow. So that's an example where I yeah. feel I could really be of help, really because I come from a, right. a place that's text-based, I'm committed to halakha, and I have had a transition. But what I hope you realize is that my transition was much more of a spiritual tikkun and a spiritual healing than it was of a gender transition. Mm-hmm. I feel like the gender... Is it contradictory? No, 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 no. But the gender is more specific where the tikkun klali or tikkun rochani, the, the spiritual healing, is much more, is wider. Like, you could hear that, you could hear that, this person, that person. Because I don't know about me, but maybe he can hear yeah. it. Well, <laughs> what I mean by that is, you quote, don't have to be transgender to understand. Right. I, understand I mean, most that, of my yeah. students, most, most of my clients, most of the people where I speak all over the world from South Africa to Rio de Janeiro, they're not transgender, but they love what I bring to them. I bring a sense of, wow, and it's not, oh, I have to be religious. It's, I need to be real with myself. And there's a Jewish tradition that says that. I, I, I kind of just answered my question, 
but I wonder if uh, maybe you can speak to it a bit more. It sounds like throughout the interview, we kind of touched upon the, I mean, we spoke all throughout about the transgender issue, but it, I sensed a bit of kind of, uh, I don't know how to define it, but like, uh, not antagonism, but like, you're kind of sick of it. Pushback? Yeah, yeah, pushback. That you're kind of sick of the idea maybe being pegged as kind of the transgender Chabad Jew or whatever. Is there a bit of like kind of I want to shed that stigma? No, no. It's not that I want to shed my... Look, my history, I wouldn't be here without all of my history. I mean, that's nothing profound. None, None of the three of us would be here without our history. And I honor my journey. I'm humbled by my transition journey. But what hurts me is when people peg me into a very little sliver. It's as if I haven't dedicated 45 years to scholarly inquiry and studying of our Jewish texts. Like that mm-hmm. has very little to do with when people say, oh, you're a transgender. When I say I'm transgender, when I say I've transitioned, I know what I mean. But out there in the world, people are quick to generalize, they're quick to peg. So if they're going to peg me, I'd rather than peg me as a spiritual activist. As a, I like to look at myself as a bridge builder. I help build bridges between uh, people and people, between people and themselves, between the mind and the heart, between the outer ego-based sense of self and the inner spiritual part of themselves. So if you're going to peg me, peg me that way rather than this. So it's not that I'm... I'm not annoyed, I'm not antagonistic. It's just that it's so flat. It, it's so flat. And, and and even worse, some people like to sensationalize it. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think at my age with my life experience, there's so much more content and depth to my commitment to inquiry and scholarly uh study of our amazing spiritual texts and sharing those spiritual practices with the world. Mm-hmm. That's with compassion. The world needs so much compassion. The world's so fragmented. The world is so divided. We say in Hebrew, hafradot. There's so many hafradot. i rather bring to people a sense of where you can be a, a person who's moved where you're distinguished to who you for who you are and you can put that piece of the puzzle into the puzzle so each one of us at this table we're a different shape we're a different form but if you look at a tapestry for example tapestry is made up of a lot of little different particulars so it's not a matter of sameness it's a matter of a oneness and that's the achdut and mm-hmm. that's what i if i'm going to be pegged peg me that way because that's the work i really am i feel called to do and to be in service to do that work. So you have a podcast. What's it called? Authentic Jewish Living with the Iska. It's available on Stitcher for Android and iTunes for iPhone. The book is called? 40 uh, Years in the Wilderness, My Journey to Authentic Living. And where you can... On Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. Yeah, yeah. You can get either and the uh, Kindle or the, this, the, pr- the print book. And there's a documentary coming up. Yes, yes. I'm very excited about that. What's what's it called? And by it's whom? called it's called I was not born a mistake, uh, and it's being produced by Yes Daco here in Israel and co-produced by Mifal Pice. So it's, it has their it's the lottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's the lottery, and they invest. So if you lost the lottery, you yeah. can uh, <laughs> see they they invest <laughs> their profits in cultural and educational and charitable uh, right. artistic 
Ventures, and I hope it will be released soon. I mean, I'm not, it's not up to me. It's up to the Yes Daco. They're looking to release it, I think, at the, uh, the film festival in Yerushalayim, hopefully, uh-huh. at the Cinematheque at the end of July. And you give lectures. Yes. So how can people... I got to get... ask, sorry, I got to ask before. Aren't you scared? Like, no, I'm excited. The... I guess, I don't know. No, I'm saying being so out in the community that you are in. Is, is there no fear? You know, what I, when I crossed over what I crossed over, I slayed the demon of fear. I fed that demon 50 years. I lived that demon. Nobody holds anything over me. And I say that with humility and with gratitude because it's a false illusion of an idol. And one of the Rebbe's that I've learned from, the Ishpitzer Rebbe, uh, he, he lived in the mid to early 19th century in Poland. He said, if you fear human beings more than God, you'll never have Yeshuv Hadat. You will never have peace of mind. You'll never have serenity inside because you'll always be looking this like, well, he didn't say I'm paraphrasing the teaching. You know, you look right, you look left, you look at he approved, she approved, they approve. And there's no time to cultivate really having awe and respect for God because we're so busy with each other, making sure that we're right by each other. Once you slay that dragon, that demon, which so defined and haunted me, I was such a fear-based person. I was so afraid of myself and therefore afraid of everyone around me. Now I'm in awe of God. I'm in awe of my own life and I'm in awe of other people around me. But nobody has anything. What are they going to hold over me? What are they going to say? I don't like you? Okay, don't like me. But I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to help you. Uh, As I said to one teacher of mine, I'm not as concerned about me anymore. I'm not not as concerned with, with what other people think about me as much as I am concerned about what people think about themselves. I'm much more concerned about that. And that's where there are serious problems now that are causing, it's like a serious, serious uh, trend of people feeling isolated, feeling disconnected, feeling lonely. This is, I'm going way out of just the religious bubble in Jerusalem. It's just all over the world. It's a very serious crisis where people have never had more ways of connecting and people are connecting less with themselves and with others. So to sorry, uh, to, yeah, to book a lecture by so, you. How can people contact you? They can contact. They can go into my website, and they, my email is there, yiska.smith at gmail.com. They can one of the tabs is speaking. I have about five or six sample talks that I can bring to an audience, but I have a lot more than that. Those are just examples, and they can email me. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Great. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal in Los Angeles. It's a great uh, source for Jewish news. They you have know the podcasts. Jewish Journal? Yeah, I, there was an article about me two years ago when I was in the area giving some lectures uh-huh. in Calabas, Calabasas. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so go check them out at jewishjournal.com and listen to their podcasts. It's highly recommended. And and we do this on our free time, guys. So if you want to uh, help us out, go to 2NJB.com slash donate. And uh, you can donate through PayPal. or uh, Yeah, it's yeah. a PayPal link. It's very easy and convenient. Iska, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank, thank you very you. much. Bye. Bye, guys.